This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. The Large Nerdron Collider podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey everybody, welcome to the Large Nerdron Collider podcast, the podcast that's all about the geeky things happening in the world around us and how very excited we are about them. I am Ariel Kasten, and with me, as always, is my brilliant friend and co-host, Jonathan Strickland. Hey Ariel. Yes, Jonathan. I've got a question for you. Do you have a movie or maybe a TV show that you really like that you have heard other people describe as bad? Yes, Van Helsing. You you genuinely like the film Van Helsing? Yes, I genuinely like Van Helsing. Well, was Hugh Jackman in that? Yes, he was. I I have never seen it. I I remember the previews. He was Gabriel Van Helsing and Kate Beckinsale was the love interest. And then Richard. (laughs) Nina Dracula son. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yes. And uh, we had Richard Roxborough and David Wenham. You know, it was. It was Dracula fighting Batman comedy and. It's what I wanted and it's what I got. And a lot of people will say it wasn't the movie they wanted. Kind of like a lot of people aren't super big fans of, I guess it's not recent now, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen with uh, Sean Connery. Yes, thank you. Sean Connery. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if you go in with 
lowered expectations, then you can be pleasantly surprised. I actually own Van Helsing. <laughs> of course you do. To be fair, you're and Dylan Dog Dead of Night, which is way worse. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but equally fun. Okay, continue on. Uh well, are do, would you like would you would you like to turn the tables on me or you... Yes, I I would. I'm sorry. I thought I had already asked you. I was so excited about my I mean, cheesy Dracula yeah. hunting. What is your favorite bad movie or movie that you think is great that everybody else does not? Well, th- this one this one's kind of unfair uh because it's throwing my wife under the bus. But uh, my wife once described Big Trouble in Little China as a good, bad movie. And I took umbrage at that because I think of it as a fantastic, great movie. There is no bad when it comes to Big Trouble in Little China. You see, I didn't watch that until later on in, in my life, as in the last 10 years. So I would have to agree with your wife. For me, it is a a good bad movie. It might have been great for its time, but because of the era in which I watched it, it fell into the bad movie. See, I I think of it as a schlocky movie, but not a bad movie. And and the reason why I asked this question, dear listeners, is that in our second segment today, we'll be taking more of a dive into what makes a good bad movie versus a bad good movie, as in like a, a bad big budget film or just a mediocre mess, right? Like what, what are the qualities that make something special where it is entertaining? Even if you could objectively say this is bad, you cannot objectively say this is bad about big trouble in little China, because that movie is freaking awesome. And I swear if we could have a a cinematic universe where big trouble in little China and uh, the last dragon could coexist along with buckaroo bonsai, it would be the best movie ever made. I am. All, I mean, I'm all about that. I like all of those movies. I would say Buckaroo Bonsai is probably the lowest on the list of those three for me. I, I can understand that because I, I love that movie. John Lithgow makes that movie, but we're getting off track. That movie has pacing issues, right? Like the last time I watched Buckaroo Bonsai, I was like, Wow, I forgot how many long, slow segments of this movie there are where like you're just waiting for something else to happen. And if you're not like really engaged, you're going to nod off. Um, But whenever John Lithgow's on the screen, he's phenomenal. Uh, Who's a laughing now? Monkey boy is still one of my favorite movie quotes of all time. (laughs) But let's get on to our first segment. What is this first segment called, Ariel? Well, this first segment is called Get to Know Jonathan. We are taking a break from the news this week, uh, and we're going to get to know our beloved friend Jonathan here. Hey, that's me. I'm Jonathan. Uh, Yes. My life's an open book. What do you want to know? (laughs) Okay. So if your life's an open book, let's start with something a real easy, like a slow ball. Like, what is your favorite book? Uh, So my favorite book would very likely, I, I think I'd have to answer the Hobbit. Um, I've got a lot of books that I absolutely adore. Good Omens by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman is one of my favorites. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams, another one. But The Hobbit by Tolkien was probably the book that really got me into the fantasy genre. So much so that I have a Lord the Lord of the Rings inspired tattoo on my left arm. 
So uh, I'm going to go with that. And, and I, I like The Hobbit for what it is. I think of it as a fairy tale. Uh, it's why I didn't love the trilogy of movies based on The Hobbit, because I felt like it was trying to turn The Hobbit into something that it's not. It was trying to go from fairy tale to epic fantasy to more closely match what we saw with Lord of the Rings. But that's why it didn't work for me, because that's not what the book is. I, I would have to agree. Is, is The Hobbit and, and Lord of the Rings something you read as a child, or is it something that you uh, discovered as more of an adult? So The Hobbit was the first long book I could, long, quote unquote, book I can remember reading as a kid. I essentially went from uh, There's a Monster at the End of This Book with Grover straight to The Hobbit. There's actually a crayon picture I drew when I was four that I have somewhere in this house. It's in a frame that says Gollum and the Ring drawn by Jonathan aged four. So I, yeah, I read The Hobbit early, early, early on. I remember, or I seem to remember, and I could be wrong about this because memory is a tricky thing, that my parents told me I could watch the cartoon of The Hobbit if I read the book first. And so I did. Um, And so I, I read it as a very young child. I tried reading Lord of the Rings when I was in middle school or high school. And I remember I tried two times and I, I stopped midway through the two towers, essentially at the siege at Helm's Deep. And I could not get past it. Like I, I just got to a point where I put the book down and I just never came back to pick it back up. And by the time I finally wanted to try it again, I'd forgotten everything, so I had to start back over. Um, so it was only on my third time reading The Lord of the Rings that I actually got all the way through. I have since reread that several times, and I've read The Cimmerillion as well. So, uh, but Two Towers is definitely the the most difficult of the books to get through, uh, I would say. So are you are you more of a fantasy guy or a sci-fi guy? You said since you have such a love for Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I, I would say that I'm probably more fantasy than science fiction throughout most of my life, I would say that I've leaned harder into science fiction over the last maybe five or six years. But definitely when I was growing up, my interest was more in fantasy. Tolkien, uh, Lloyd Alexander, Piers Anthony, although that was more than a little problematic in retrospect. I didn't realize it at the time, but as an adult, I definitely see it. Uh, Robert Asprin, like these are all authors that I read, uh, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. Um, so I was really into that. And then it's been more in recent years, I, I've been sort of gravitating more towards science fiction than fantasy, largely because I think uh, there are too many fantasy authors who are not good and they fall into the mm-hmm. same sort of tropes where you feel like everyone is just kind of a, a copy of a copy of a copy of Tolkien. So... Yeah. You know, they don't really stand out so well. Um, I will say that there was one point where I was kind of drafting out an idea for a book of my own. And that is a book that would be in the fantasy genre. If I ever write it, it'll be a fantasy book. I uh, super hope you do, because I would love to read it. So you mentioned reading fantasy as a very, very young child. And I know your dad is an author Mm -hmm. and you went to a lot of conventions Mm -hmm. because of that cross section of your life. What is the earliest convention you can remember? Ooh, I remember. Okay. My memory is terrible as far as figuring out which bits are earliest, but I went to, there was a, a convention that predated dragon con called the Atlanta fantasy fair. And it was sort of the big science fiction fantasy convention in Atlanta before Dragon Con became a thing. And I remember going to that 
and their costume contest was one of the the pivotal events of the entire convention. And my mom loved making costumes for me and my sister. And so we were entered into the costume contest pretty much every single year. And I think the very first costume I ever wore to one of those, and I won uh, the children's category, was E.T. the Extraterrestrial. I was the little squat E.T. Uh, I looked like a giant plush E.T. doll. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, and I won that. My sister won Best of Show for the entire masquerade. She was um, uh, the female Gelfling from The Dark Crystal. Uh, Kira, I think? I can't remember her name. But and she had a little fizz gig puppet on her hand. Um, so that's the earliest I remember. But we also would go to... Uh, like Star Trek conventions. And there was a, a, another smaller Atlanta convention called Phoenix con we would go to. So I went to a lot of these and it was a really cool experience. Like it was one of those things where to me it was just normal because that's how I grew up. But um, again, as an adult, I can look back on that and say like, wow, that was a really special time. That sounds like a really special time and it's great to have those kind of memories. So was it a transition of going to the conventions? Is that how you got into the Georgia Renaissance Festival? Because we've talked about we both worked at Georgia Renaissance Festival. Is it you went to the conventions, you went to the Ren Fest, you said, hey, I want to do this? Or how did you get involved there? So uh, I first went to the Renaissance Festival when I was a kid. Now, Ariel and I worked at the Renaissance Festival where it's at its current location. But before that, it was in a slightly smaller site that was just down the road from where it is now. This doesn't mean anything to anyone who's not in Georgia, but <laughs> but it was a smaller site. It was in like this little wooded area. And I remember going and thinking it was fantastic. We saw stage shows. I remember Zilch the Tory Steller and I remember the Mud Show players and all these sorts of, of fun characters. And I thought it was really enchanting, but that was about it. And then I was at Dragon Con and I was in a production of a show called Romeo and Ethel, the Pirate's Daughter. And this was the version of it before you did it, Ariel, because you were in one of those too, right? You were in the second one? I, I was I was in the reiteration of yeah. it, yes. So this was in the original one where I was playing uh, a character named Byron. All the sailors in our, our little story, which was a one-off joke in Shakespeare in Love. And the actress who was playing the spirit Ariel... <laughs> Uh, was Val and Val would go on. She was also working at the, uh, the Renaissance festival and she would go on to become an entertainment director there. But she told me while we were in rehearsals for this show about the auditions for the Renaissance festival. And back then the Renaissance festival had a fall season and a spring season. So I auditioned for the fall season and um, I was told that I was one of just a few people who had ever auditioned and immediately got hired. I didn't have to do a callback or anything. They hired me on the spot and they gave me the choice of playing either the town doctor or the town mayor. And I thought mayor outranks doctor. So I picked him <laughs> and that, that began my career at the Georgia Renaissance festival. And that was 1999. Oh, golly. That seems forever ago. Your mayor, by the way, was hilarious. It's part of the reason I joined the Renaissance festival. So the other thing I want to ask you about is horror movies. You love horror. I do. Uh, and I guess it harkens back to when you said the first book you remember reading is a monster at the end of this book, because mm -hmm. I guess that would be a very infantile child introduction to horror, mm -hmm. uh, even though it's got a happy ending. So when did you decide that you liked horror? 
what is your favorite bad horror movie and what is your favorite good horror movie? Oh man, those are some good questions. So <laughs> I think I got into horror when I was probably probably around 12 or 13, which is about, I think, the average age for most horror fans. Um, I, I just was one of those things where, for one thing, it seemed like it was forbidden, right? Because horror movies were the types of things that would come on late, you know, after your bedtime normally. So there was that sort of uh, allure that this is something outside of what you're supposed to experience. Uh, but I also just found it fascinating. And I mean, as a kid, I remember there were certain movies that as an adult, they aren't scary to me at all. But as a kid, that really messed me up. Um, but if we're talking about my favorite bad horror movie and my favorite good horror movie, my favorite bad horror movie. Oh, this is a hard one. Uh, I'm going to say Dr. Giggles, which I think I've only seen one time, but. I remember loving how truly terrible a horror movie it is. It was a slasher film. And I remember that I had uh, uh, buttons that were promotional buttons at these science fiction conventions. One of the things that you used to be able to get were all these freebies that movie uh, movie companies would put out to promote upcoming films. And I had a huge collection of buttons from various movies. And I remember there were two for Dr. Giggles where it said the doctor is in and then written next to it was sane. So insane. <laughs> and the other one was the doctor is out and written next to it was of his mind. And um, Dr. Giggles is a really dumb slasher horror film that I loved. As for good horror movies, there are so many. But if I have to pick one, like a truly phenomenal horror movie, it's the witch or the Vavitch, if you prefer. That one is spectacular. It is an incredible film. As, a, as someone who also loves Shakespeare, it has a, um, a Shakespearean kind of, of gravitas, and the language helps a lot with that because it's very uh, a period, a realistic language, and it is just a phenomenal film. And it stars uh, the... Uh, the Queen's Gambit actress, who was also... I was about to ask. Yeah, she's, she's amazing in it. She's so young and so good, and she makes me so mad because she's so good. <laughs> yeah, I, I can feel that. And Anya Taylor-Joy. Yes. I should know her name by now. She is... She's she's killing it. She was also recently in a, in a bad horror movie, The New Mutants. Yes. I hear that she was giving a really terrible accent in that film. You know, I haven't watched it. Maybe maybe I'll watch it when I'm really bored on demand one day. So do you tend towards slasher films over suspense or? Uh, actually, I prefer supernatural horror that involves lots of tension. I actually think those are much better. Like another great film that I love is The Changeling, which was a 1980 film with uh, George C. Scott or uh, The Exorcist 3, which is not at all really related. I mean, it is somewhat related to the first Exorcist movie, not at all related to Exorcist 2. Um, both of those are incredible at, at cranking up tension, uh, but they're not. They both kind of go off the rails toward the very end of the movie, which is unfortunate. But for most of the film, they're just really good at making you feel very tense and wondering, is this tension ever going to be relieved? And I, I love movies like that that can have you feel that sort of thing. To me, a slasher film is just dumb fun. Most of the time in a slasher film, what you're left wondering is in what order are your protagonists going to die and how are they <laughs> going to do it? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I, I just watched Scream for the first time this year 
and uh that that was what i spent the entire movie asking so yeah. well that one that one's also slashers. a deconstruction of the slasher genre right like that was scream was a commentary on slasher films and sort of a almost a, a parody of them and that was what I found so entertaining about Scream was that it was being very smart about how dumb slasher films are. So would you say that was a good movie, a good bad movie or a bad good movie? Scream? Scream yes. was good good. Yeah. No, the first Scream good, is good. the first Scream is a genuinely good movie. The sequels less so. <laughs> <laughs> Got you. Well, uh thank you for letting me interview you and uh letting all of our listeners learn a little bit more about you and the geek that you are. We're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about some movies that are good, bad or bad. Good. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue global. When you come back with a Purdue global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. 
Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash iHeart. That's lifelock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Okay, Ariel, can you define for me what it means to you for a movie to be a good, bad movie? What does that mean to you? I don't know. So there's so many different definitions of that. So I guess when you initially say a good, bad movie, that is a movie that is so bad that it is enjoyable to watch. Mm -hmm. Usually to me, those are movies that people tried really hard to make a good movie and it just failed. Mm -hmm. But all of that passion and all of that drive to deliver entertainment is still there. Uh, I will say there are a couple of movies to me that were intentionally written poorly or set satirically that are also quite fun, fun to watch, but that's much harder to pull off. And that's when you veer into a, uh, whether it's a good, bad movie or a bad, good movie, because if they're trying to make a bad movie good and it fails, is this whole conundrum? What about you? What is a what is a good bad movie to you? I think I I pretty much agree with you one hundred percent. I think pretty much I'm qualifying this a lot. I agree with you. I think I think a good bad movie is a movie that fails on typically a spectacular level to deliver what they set out to do, but it wasn't intentional. Like it it was. Due to the limitations of the filmmakers, it might be due to the limitations of their equipment or their expertise with using the equipment. It might be due to the limitations of their acting ability of the cast. Um, it might be all, it might be a, a collection of these factors. It might be terrible editing where you're watching the movie and you're constantly asking what's going on because the sequence doesn't seem to be following. Like you're not able to logically go from scene to scene to scene. These are all things to me that make a good, bad movie where you can have fun watching it. And it's not even necessarily mean spirited. It's just, it's just, just the amazement of how bad it is. I think of the room when I finally saw because Ariel, you saw the room a whole bunch of times before I ever saw it. I I did. I, I I have matching T-shirts with a few of my friends that are the Golden Gate Bridge. Yeah. That when we line up, we make the Golden Gate Bridge. It says "Go Go Go" across the back because I saw it in theaters with a bunch of people, uh, sort of as an interactive experience, similar to going to see Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, yeah. And see, to me, like that's that that is the epitome of a good bad movie because that movie is, by any objective standard, a bad movie. Characters have terrible motivation, there's horrible dialogue. I mean, the the actual technical expertise of the film crew seems to be fine because it's not like the camera angles are weird or that the sound is bad, but... A couple of times the sound is not great. Yeah, and, and there are ridiculous sequences shot on a soundstage that could have just as easily been set, shot on location, uh, which really, you find out the reason for that is because the, Tommy Wiseau, the, the filmmaker 
wanted his movie to be a quote unquote real movie and real movies were shot on sound stages, not in the world. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's such a weird film that I was just constantly saying to the screen out loud, what? And, uh, uh, much to the amusement of the three other people I was with, all of whom had seen the film before. Uh, and, and, uh, but that is a genuine good, bad film. Another one I would argue that a lot of people will think of is Trolls 2. Trolls 2 is ridiculously awful. Like it is hard to put into words how bad Trolls 2 is, but it's wildly entertaining. <laughs> I will admit I've only seen bits and pieces of Troll 2 where yes. the person is eating corn. Yes. I believe. Yeah. I should say Troll 2. I said Trolls 2, not like the characters, not like the little cartoon. I mean Troll 2. <laughs> not the one with the McElroy brothers in it. Right. Not, not yeah, not Trolls World Tour. Although if the McElroy brothers were in Troll 2, that would be pretty phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. No, I couldn't tell you what the eating corn pertained to. But I think the reason that I made it through the room as many times as I did and I didn't make it through Troll 2 is because I watched the room with a group of people who could commiserate in the badness with me. I feel like that is integral when you're watching either a, a movie that is intentionally bad and well done or a movie that was meant to be well done and it's just really, really bad. That's that's the whole premise behind Mystery Science Theater 3000. Mm. When, I, when I saw Troll 2... I thought for the first time uh, it was for another show called Podcast Without Pretense, where we had all decided that we were going to watch terrible movies on Netflix and see how far we could get into them without having any distractions, because all of us realized that we had all gotten into the habit of having something on, but also like looking at our phones or on a computer or something. So you're not really paying attention. And we said, let's try and dedicate our full focus to things that do not deserve it and see, see how far we can get. And so we picked troll two. I think that might've even been our first movie that we ever picked. And I, I started it up thinking, you know, I had never seen it before the movie starts and I'm like, Oh, you know what? I have seen some of this before, but I think it's only like the first five minutes. First five minutes goes by get into the second five minutes. I'm like, no, I've seen this too. And I kept waiting for the moment where I could say, Oh, that's where I left off until the movie ended and I realized I had actually already seen the thing all the way through, but had wiped it from my mind. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's intense. Uh, now do you like, uh, I know you like mystery science theater 3000. Mm -hmm. You like the room and troll too. What about movies that are intentionally bad, like Sharknado or the FP or, I'm going to say Velocipaster. I actually don't know whether that one was just bad or super low budget. I'm guessing the former. So but it might have been the latter. So I think you hit upon it when you were describing good, bad movies, where you talked about if you are intentionally making something bad, but with the goal of being entertaining, that is way harder, I think, than making something that's good and entertaining. I think it's actually easier to make a good, entertaining thing than a bad entertaining thing because you're more likely to make something that either doesn't come across as genuine. So you're like, well, yeah, we could all get in front of the camera and do a really crappy job, but that doesn't make it good. That doesn't make it entertaining. Um, uh, you know, you, you have to be able to craft that in a way that makes it good. I think of certain things like the play noises off, right? Mm -hmm. Noises off is a play 
within a play. And there is a, a section where the actors in that play within a play are actively trying to sabotage one another while a performance is going. So things are going wrong, but they have to go wrong in exactly the right way. And that's where the comedy is. And if anyone messes up, if they mess up messing up, the jokes don't work. <laughs> so it's like it's like the most well-timed magic trick, really. And there are other examples of this, the play that goes wrong or the goes wrong show. Those are based on that same premise. Sometimes it works. Like I would say that there are certain bad things that were made to be bad that work and they are entertaining. And there are others that it just feels so lazy and so designed by committee that uh, I actually find it distracting and distressful. Like, Sharknado is a great example. I think the Sharknado films in general are so lazy and sloppy and done with a complete lack of respect for the audience that it comes through as being just a cheap um, cash grab. And Mm -hmm. they're not like they're bad and they're laughably bad in the sense that the stuff that's happening doesn't make any logical sense. But you realize like that was something that was decided upon it didn't just happen because of the limitations of the filmmaking process. It happened mm-hmm. because someone decided, Hey, let's do it this way because won't that be funny at how bad it is. And when it's done that way, it just doesn't, the magic's gone. Yeah. I, I could agree with you there. I, it, I think it goes back to the passion thing. Again, if you're making a movie to be laughably bad, just to, Hey, people like bad movies, let's make a bad movie then it doesn't have that extra little something. I, Going back to The Room, I watched The Disaster Artist, which is a movie about the making of The Room Mm -hmm. with James Franco. And it had this really great, you came out of that movie going, man, this was a train wreck, but the people really tried. And so at the same time that I'm laughing at it, I almost feel bad because of how much heart the person put into it. So I feel a little conflicted with the bad movies, but it's it's always the ones like that that become cult classics that I'm most happy for as well because they're able to find joy and and acceptance in this thing that they poured their heart into. I just don't get the same heart in Sharknado. Yeah, That's yeah. An odd thing well, to say. and 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 like you said, like. It is, I mean, it's a, it is it is frustrating for an artist for their work to be uh, enjoyed in a way they had not anticipated, right? Like, especially, especially in a way where people are making fun of it or laughing at it when you were trying to make something serious. That, I'm sure, is a big blow to an artist's ego. However, there's another potential outcome that's even worse which is where you get the mediocre film where there's nothing entertaining about it at all, where it's not well-made, but it's also not entertaining. And you just feel like you've wasted your time and you're bored to tears and you've, you've got nothing really substantive to say about it. That's the worst outcome, right? So there are outcomes that where you, you walk away and you're like, "I, I, I can't believe I spent my time seeing that there was a, um, there was a Jean-Claude Van Damme film. It was one of those martial arts tournament style films. And I can't even remember the title of it now, but I remember I got a free pass to go and see it when I was in college in Athens, Georgia. So I go with a friend of mine, we go and we get to see it for free. 
And at the end of the movie, we sat there and thought, I almost want to ask for my money back, except I didn't pay for anything to see this film. (laughs) You know, I felt that way about some films too. I felt that way about Sucker Punch and it's highly contested among my friends, but that movie, I just walked out of saying, "Mm mm-mm. No, not for me. Yeah, I, I have a it was, lot. It was close to Southland's tale of a bad for me. I, I've got a lot of friends who feel the same way about both of those movies. <laughs> so <laughs> but that they also share your opinion is what I mean. I have not seen either of those. Uh, we have a few on our list we didn't really cover and we're going to conclude this discussion. But uh, we just wanted to mention like some of the ones we'll probably talk about in a subsequent episode where we talk about stuff like nostalgia, because some of these movies that are the good, bad or bad, good movies are also trying to tap in to nostalgia as a means of connecting with the audience. So I would argue the FP falls into that category, but I thought the FP was genuinely entertaining, just really, really strange. I thought it was more strange than bad, but it did go super schlocky, like schlocky bad, I guess. And and I believe purposefully so. Yes. Turbo Kid the same way. Turbo Kid was over-the-top schlocky, uh, and really hitting on the nostalgia as well. But but there also seemed to be a genuine sincerity to the, the narrative under the story, right? Like, I get that with the yeah. FP as well. Like, in both of those, you look at it and you think, this is something that someone wanted to make, as opposed to, I pitched this idea in a pitch meeting where we were just throwing spaghetti against the wall and this one strand happened to stick and now I have to make it. That's the way I feel about the Asylum movies is the Asylum movies to me feel like they were made in a quick cash grab opportunistic way. Uh, And uh, and that's bared out, I think, a lot by the fact that most of the Asylum films are uh, cheap knockoffs of big budget movies. Yeah, you know... uh Kung Fury is another one that that banks on your nostalgia, but is is purposefully bad. And and I know many friends would say it misses the mark. For me, I think my my favorite bad movies are things like Hudson Hawk or Howard the Duck because they do play on that. It, they're schlocky. They play on my nostalgia factor, and they're just fun. It seems like everybody had fun making them. Yeah, I, I don't know how far I can go with you on Howard the Duck. That movie. I mean, it's weird. That movie it's, I hated ever since. I, and that movie came out when I was a kid, and I've hated it <laughs> all my entire life. Um, but Hudson Hawk, I saw that film long after there was the whole like hoopla about it being the worst movie of all time. You know, whenever a movie comes out that doesn't meet people's expectations, uh, it immediately gets branded as the worst of all time, right? And Hudson Hawk had been listed as one of those contenders for the worst movie of all time. When I finally saw it, I thought. This is what people were saying. Listen, I have seen way worse than this. <laughs> and and uh, like Hudson Hawk at times is genuinely entertaining. There are segments of Hudson Hawk that are either cringeworthy or just like you just want to turn it off. But it's nowhere near the worst movie of all time. And it does manage to be quite entertaining uh, through much of it. So it goes it goes back to my Van Helsing statement of if you go in with lowered expectations, you're going to be pleasantly surprised. (laughs) Yes. And on that note, please lower your expectations. After this break, we'll be coming back with a mashup. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. 
When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Okay, Ariel, it's mashup time. What two properties are we taking to make something new out of? Well, we are taking Masters of the Universe. He-Man. Which is a He-Man movie. Yeah. Not the same exactly as the cartoon, but still. And Kill Bill. Excellent. Uh, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? I Well, do we want to explain what Kill Bill is if anybody doesn't know? Oh, an excellent point. Yeah, we should. All right. So uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take I'll take one. Which one do you want to take? I'll be glad to take the other one. I'll, I'll take Masters of the Universe. OK, go for it. OK, so Masters of the Universe is this 1987 movie based on He-Man. It doesn't really follow the He-Man cartoon the timeline exactly it's got some it's got some of the same characters and, and similar through lines but it's got some of its own characters uh it stars Dolph Lundgren uh and 
when Dolph Lundgren was in this movie, he actually had to learn English to play the part of He-Man. <laughs> he learned English for this movie. It's schlocky. It's bad. It's got uh, Courtney Cox in it, who's an orphan because her parents died in a plane crash. It's got Billy Barty in it. It's got Billy Barty in it as Gwildor, who is a special character for this movie. It's just, it's all over the place, but it's so bad. It's good. And that's saying something for He-Man because the He-Man cartoon itself was made to sell toys. Yes. It, it was not by any means, any sort of high brown brow entertainment. Uh, animation can be true art. He-Man was not it. Mm-mm. All right. Okay. So what about Kill Bill? Kill Bill. It's a Quentin Tarantino pair of movies, volume one and volume two. And it tells us the story of the bride whose name is revealed at the end. But just in case you haven't seen the movie, I'm not going to spoil it for you. And uh, it, it's, it opens up with her being shot uh, on the floor of a church and she survives. And when she wakes up after a coma, after four years, she is determined to hunt down her assailants and knock them off one by one. And as you watch the movie, you learn that she is one of a group of elite assassins all had uh, with nicknames that, that or code names that came after different types of snakes, except for bill who is uh, the, the leader of the group. And so she is out to kill bill for what he did to her. Uh, there are a lot more details than that, but that's really all you need to know. Oh, I guess I didn't go over the plot of, of he, uh, he Ben. I don't of the really universe. think you need to, it is to, to explain the plot of masters of the universe would be crazy. There's a, there's a magic key and the good guys need to get it before the bad guys can use it. <laughs> yeah. And and they go to earth and then they go back to Eternia. Okay. That's all you need to know. Okay. So I'm going to start. Okay. So this is kill Skell. So for Kill Skell, we have to start out a while back. Back when He-Man was a member of Skeletor's crew, when Skeletor was new to Eternia. Bet you didn't know that was a thing, uh, but it is for this. He-Man got tired of Skeletor always trying to take over all of the power of the universe and decided to change factions, joining up with pro-Eternia fellows Tila and Man-at-Arms. He quickly falls in love with Tila, and they decide to get married, and this infuriates Skeletor, who tries to kill He-Man. However, he only exceeds in knocking him out and sends him to a different planet, Earth. When He-Man awakes, he's in this strange place, Earth, mad that he has been sent to this horrible land far away from his love. He searches for revenge. He comes across Beast Man following a trail of shedded fur and threatens to beat him up to get a clue on how to get home and get revenge. Beast Man caves and tells him that he must learn the five-point cosmic key punch to defeat Skeletor once and for all. But the only person who can teach him that is Gwydor, who is being held captive by Evil Olin. Is she? <laughs> Evil Olin is... <laughs> Evil Olin is extra dangerous because she has the katana of Grayskull. He-Man defeats Evil Olin, is she, frees Gwydor, who teaches him the five-point cosmic key punch, and then uses the power of the katana of Grayskull by the power of Grayskull to send him back to Eternia. He-Man confronts Skeletor, pretending to want to rejoin his crew, and when they come together for the reconciliation hug, He-Man strikes Skeletor with the five-point cosmic key punch. As Skeletor falls to the ground, we see He-Man raise a sword above his head in victory. Nice. All right. You ready for my mashup? Yes. Okay. I decided to ignore the movie and went straight to the cartoon. <laughs> Sounds good. I grew up with it. So here we go. Here's my master of the universe meets kill bill. 
We open on a close-up of Evil Lynn's face as she lays on the floor. She's clearly wounded, and we hear a calm voice tell her that he didn't want it to come to this. She gasps and says, Keldor, it's your... But before she can finish the sentence, she's blasted by an energy beam. Cut to credits. Some music from the 70s play. Let's say it's Funky Town by Lips Incorporated. <laughs> the title reads, Kill Keldor, Volume 1. Four years later, Evil Lynn, who apparently survived the attack, arrives at the Cave of Beastman. She and Beastman get into a knockdown dragout fight until Beastman's kid, Beast Boy, shows up and they <laughs> pretend to play nice with the promise to meet later when Beast Boy is at soccer practice or something. Evil Lynn shows up and Beastman tries to take her by surprise by pulling a whip out of a cereal box. But Evil Lynn can totally see that, like, half the whip is overflowing out of the box, so she zaps him with some sorceress magic. Then Evil Lynn takes out a list that has five names on it. One of them has already been crossed off. Beastman's name is the second on the list, so she crosses that one off. The names on the list read Merman, Beastman, Trapjaw, Stinkor, and Keldor, with parentheses next to that name that says Skeletor? Question mark? Question mark? <gasps> We flash back to that day when Evil Lynn got zapped. He-Man and Tila arrive at the scene of the crime near Snake Mountain and realize that Evil Lynn, though comatose, is still alive and they bring her to Castle Grayskull. Evil Lynn lies in a coma for four years, waking up suddenly and using her magic powers to escape from Castle Grayskull. She momentarily bewitches Cringer slash Battle Cat and hooks him up to a wagon to escape. So she escapes in a... Let's call it a kitty wagon. <laughs> Some more 70s music plays. Uh, let's say it's uh, Rupert Holmes's classic, Escape, a.k.a. the Pina Colada song. We flash forward to Evil Lynn traveling to face off against the first name on her list, Merman, which requires her to go to a crummy old pond on the outskirts of Snake Mountain. There, Merman is having a party at an octopus's garden in the shade. Some cool indie band is playing. You know the type of band. The type that's so cool, you would never see them live because they'd only play like three exclusive parties before they broke up over some stupid reason. So you'd always hear from your friend Steve how great they were as if Steve were at the party. But how the heck did Steve get in? I mean, Steve's a total <laughs> jerk. And besides, he doesn't know anyone cool, so he's got to be lying about it. I know you're lying, Steve. Anyway, they play a song from the 70s. It's Debbie Boone's You Light Up My Life. Evil Lynn then faces off against a horde of Merman's accomplices, but they're mostly fish, so it really doesn't slow her down very much. Then she has a big fight with Merman, where the score builds it up like it's going to be some sort of epic combat sequence, but in fact it just takes like three moves and she kills Merman, so she crosses him off the list. One of Merman's fish flops out of the pond and all the way up to Snake Mountain, where we see it warn Keldor, a.k.a. Skeletor, of Evil Lynn's return. Skeletor says something cool, except he does it in that dumb voice of his. He thinks he's so big. And we end with another 70s song. Uh, I'm going to say it's the theme to The Great Grape Ape Show. And we end because <laughs> this is volume one. So what happens next? I guess we'll have to wait for another mashup to find out. Oh, that was brilliant. Thank you. That leaves my mashup far in the dust. Well, I, I also didn't have to, I didn't restrict myself to the movie. If I had, it would have been <laughs> a lot less ridiculous. <laughs> Listen, I'm glad, I'm just glad you didn't bring Fisto into it because that's. Yeah, well, there were a lot of, there are a lot of characters of uh, He-Man that to choose from, but I went with the classics. So anyone who mm -hmm. is aware of the old He-Man toys, 
they use like four different molds to produce most of the action figures. So a lot of the characters are legit identical to one another, except for some slight accessories and paint jobs. And otherwise they're exactly the same figure. Uh, so much so that fun fact, you could pull the arms off of your He-Man toys and switch them with other He-Man toys. So I had a He-Man who had a Skeletor arm and a beast man arm. And you know, there's a lot of disarming in He-Man at my house. That poor He-Man figures. Mm. But that's our mashups. And I'm sure our listeners have great ideas for mashing up, you know, masters of the universe and kill bill. uh, Some of which we might even be able to share with everybody else. Keep in (laughs) mind, this is a family show, uh, which is why it was the kitty wagon. (laughs) Yes. But if you do have an idea for that, you can write us and tell us all about it. You can reach out to us on Twitter at LNC underscore podcast or on Facebook or Instagram at the Large Nordron Collider. Send us a DM, send us a message. We'll read it. If we like it, we'll even read it on the show. Yes, and make sure that you tell your friends about this show. And if you are listening to it, you know, give us a review on whatever service you use. It really helps to get the show out there. We would greatly appreciate it. And uh, we really look forward to doing lots of these. And if you have any other suggestions for mashups, stuff that you would like us to cover, you know, geek topics that you think we should dive into. Let us know that too. Yeah. And until next time, I'm Ariel Caston. And I'm Jonathan Strickland. Large Nerdron Collider is a production of iHeartRadio and was created by Ariel Kasten. Jonathan Strickland is the executive producer. The show is produced, edited, and published by Tari Harrison. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. 
To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org.